Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on London Radio. Welcome, 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 welcome to this May 2019 episode of Buildings on Air. Buildings on Air, of course, is the show where we talk about left politics, architecture, sometimes more of one, less of the other. Uh, you know, depends on how we're feeling, but it's a beautiful spring day uh, here in Chicago. Producer Jamie, how you doing? Doing great. Yeah, great. I'm not drowning anymore under the uh, torrential (laughs) rain that we've had. Yes, uh, I'm sure that'll change tomorrow. Uh, You know, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm feeling good, and we've got a great show lined up today. Uh, This is, I think, maybe the like the third month that we've been on the shifted time slot. Yeah, we might have to go in the fourth, since I pointed out that a very critical (laughs) sporting event is coming up. Uh, Very critical. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Right during our normal time slot. But uh, in any case. Keep an eye out on our uh, Twitter feed at BLDGS on air for updates on when you'll get the next episode. We'll uh, we'll always make sure that you get one a month, unless otherwise <laughs> noted. Um, anyway, um, we've got a great show. So uh, first up, uh, we are talking with Scott and Garrett from Upcodes about public access uh, to the law, uh, what that means, what the implications are for architects, uh, this sort of thing. Uh, then we'll open up. Uh, the Critics Corner with Anjali Rao. Uh, And this time we'll be talking about uh, an article by Richard Florida in City Lab called Building More Housing is No Match for Inequality. It's a really great piece. Uh, so Anjali and I will be chatting about that. And then um, and then we're answering your listener questions in the mailbag with Craig Reschke and Ann Louie of Future Firm. So still time to get those questions in. Uh, you can tweet at us at BLDGS on air. We might answer your question live on the radio. Especially if it's about HVAC. Especially, oh, you know, it was summer around the corner. You know we've got those HVAC questions. <laughs> um, and also I'd like to shout out a uh, friend of the show, Baz, uh, uh, for uh, – uh, I don't know, doing the tweet that introduced us to Upcodes um, uh, and, and uh, what, what, what they're up to. Um, I've got uh, Scott and Garrett on the line uh, from Upcodes. Scott, Garrett, how's it going? Not too bad. Thanks for having us on the show. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, for, well. uh, thanks, for, thanks for joining us. Um, and so maybe you can just give us, uh, before we jump in, uh, to the whole... Saga. It, it, it seems like it's quite the saga. Uh, maybe you can give us a kind of brief overview. Like, what is Upcodes? Like, uh, I'll do the, the inside the actor's studio. Like, who, who are Scott and Garrett? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. We can give a quick, quick background. So, so I'm, this is Scott and, and Garrett. Um, so we're, we're co-founders of a company called Upcodes. And we focus on architects, engineers, and homeowners to provide some tools and new technology to help them navigate building regulations. So all of the parameters that go on behind getting anything built, whether it's building codes, electrical codes, fire codes, or accessibility codes, just providing some, some workflows and tools to, to help those uh, individuals to, through that process. Yeah, and that's that's awesome. I mean, I, I know we it's kind of an old saw on buildings on air to like talk about codes, uh, you know, but they are like a really important part of what architects do obviously. Um, you know, I also think it's really easy for architects to be grouchy about codes, but like building codes are good <laughs> and they save lives. Um, but uh, but uh, uh you know, I think I think 
having that information at your fingertips when you're an architect is kind of a surprisingly difficult thing to do. We often have to kind of bring on code consultants and things like this. Um, but, you know, one of the reasons why y'all are, are, are on the show um, is because one of the things we also talk about or have brought up on Buildings on Air before is kind of this public access to the building codes. And, um, you know, and I, and I, and, and so, um, I guess I don't know how how I've kind of how what like what is it that you guys are doing that's different from kind of the normal lay of the land of like how people have access to codes and sort of uh, you guys are in some maybe uh, like hot water seems like too strong of a phrase or something but but you're, you, there's some frictions with what you guys are trying to do that have kind of emerged so um, will you kind of talk talk us through that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and there's there's quite a bit of friction. And really, it, it boils down to do these professionals and homeowners have access to those codes? Mm-hmm. Um, so like you said, it's quite a difficult process trying to uh, get a clear understanding what, what are the requirements of these codes and, and these laws. And the premise and kind of the foundation of, of the products we, we offer is free access to these laws. Mm-hmm. Um, and we build tools on top of that free access. And just like you alluded to, um, one big question in uh, that that's being raised currently is, you know, can we provide and redistribute the, these these laws? Yeah. And and do we have the right to innovate on on these laws? Um, it's a little bit weird uh, of a situation in that there's these organizations, nonprofits that that actually claim copyright on these these codes. Um, so as a quick background, organizations like like ICC or NFPA they convene committees of volunteers who write the code. Um, so these are industry professionals and uh, government officials who volunteer their time, um, help write these codes. Um, groups like ICC bundle that up um, and and provide a lot of services around that. Um, they've historically been uh, gatekeepers of the code, and uh, and that's why they've, they've taken issue with with upcodes in, in, in um, our free offerings of, of those same codes. Yeah, so ICC being the International Code Council, right? And they, they write right, the... Right. Uh, they write the International Building Code, right, which is one of two two main building codes that get used across the country. Uh, is that am I is that right? I mean, I know in, in Chicago, like we're we're for better and for worse, a little bit insulated from this um, because Chicago has its own building code, uh, uh, but but right. uh, that's kind of heavily based off of some of the the model codes that exist. But usually, I for just for for listeners who 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 might be interested um you know we the way that most of these codes sort of work is that you have these uh, standards developing organizations or 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 code developing organizations that kind of write a model code that then cities uh kind of write into their own laws sort of by reference right so they'll like write a law that says like we are adopting the international building code this year they might throw some amendments in there maybe not um and then you get into this weird situation where there's a copyright sort copywritten sort of document that then is referenced into the law so then this part of the law is behind a copyright which may, basically puts it effectively behind a paywall is that is that is that a, 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 the a right correct breakdown of what's happening yeah that's exactly right and uh, one extra point you know with the Chicago building code that's based off the International Building Code from ICC. So they, t- to my knowledge, they believe they own that law too. 
So that law that oh, wow. all Chicago residents have to follow or yeah. face civil or criminal penalties, they own that. They think they own that. Yeah. Uh, and we obviously disagree. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, obviously like this, this to anyone, I mean, I think this is also like one of those issues that like unites people from like all across the political spectrum. Cause you're just like, what? Like, you know, you, how, do, how does like a private entity sort of like own a law like that? Like, right. Like, but that, that's like, right. you know, and that, that might be like a sort of reductive way of, of explaining it, but it doesn't seem to me to be like totally inaccurate. No, no, I, I, absolutely. And that, that is very much the, the situation we find ourselves in. And, and I, I think, you know, it, it was very frustrating for me, especially coming from a background in architecture. I used to, I studied as an architect and I worked as an architect. And to see kind of our industry and some of these limitations that's been imposed on it over the last 10, 20 years, compared to other industries that, that haven't had those limitations and have benefited from really interesting mm-hmm. innovations. Yeah, You can look at lawyers and obviously a lot of law is not copyrighted and and they have these pretty incredible tools in their tool belt that make them more effective and efficient in their jobs yeah and i'm looking at the industry and saying hey you know as architects why don't we have these same tools and i think a lot of it comes down to um some of these barriers like like these organizations claiming copyright in the law um right to expand on that a little bit we've we've come across five or six either companies or individuals or organizations that try to create pretty interesting products um, Mm. similar to our own or or interesting ways to help uh, people navigate through these codes. And we're ultimately shut down by companies like ICC or, or NFPA mm-hmm. um, who, who threaten lawsuits and, and legal action if, if they continued with these tools. And those tools never saw the light of day. And, you know, I, ju- I just wonder, you know, what, what would the world look like and what would our industry look like if, if those tools had, had flourished? Right. And those are only the ones that, that we came across. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more. Yeah. So what, you know, I think the, these, there's, there's been a kind of number of lawsuits. I know, uh, we, we tried to get them on the show, but, um, uh, there's a, there's a, uh, a, a kind of, uh, I don't know, like a, like a lion for public access to the law. Carl, <laughs> Carl uh, Malamud, is that right? Or Mamalud? I can I can never remember. I always get them mixed up. <laughs> but I know that yeah. he's, he's been he's been uh, very active in this kind of fight for a long time. And, and we, we had tried to get him on the show a while ago and it just didn't pan out. Um, but um, but I know that he, he's kind of been involved with with lawsuits before with some of these same standards developing organizations, um, you know, and. And, and so, uh, and 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 now you guys find yourselves in, in involved in a lawsuit. Is that is that right? I don't know how much you guys can talk about it, sort of like on the, on the radio, uh, but sure, yeah. And and I think we can talk about it. Our lawyer might uh, yell at us after, but um, <laughs> yeah. So Carl Malamud is uh, so we're we're huge fans of Carl Malamud. Um, if if it weren't for him and other people like Peter Veck and in, in a, who, who set a, another important case uh, back in about 2006, hmm. uh, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing now. Hmm. Uh, so Carl Malamud, along with his organization Public Resource and as well as the Electronic Frontier Foundation, they're currently in a suit right now in the D.C. Circuit. Um, they just had a very uh, a, a pretty big victory at the circuit level um, against. Uh, National Fire Protection Agency, NFPA, mm-hmm. uh, ASTM. Um, so that was a very encouraging uh, result for us. And and like you were mentioning before, it kind of cuts across the political spectrum. Uh, they had three judges ruling in on that case. One was a Clinton appointee, uh, one was an Obama appointee, and one was a Trump appointee. And all three judges were extremely clear 
uh, in their statements saying you just can't copyright the law. It's not sensible. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, it occurs to me, I think we brought it up on the show before, but uh, listeners might be most familiar with public resource, especially our architects audience. If you've ever downloaded a version of the code that has like a very bizarre looking copyright notice on the front of it that has like an American flag on it. Like, uh, you know, every time you try to find sort of like a PDF of like some code or standard, like in- inevitably, like that's one of the versions you come across on some sort of sketchy PDF download website, but you download it. And then, but the reason why that copyright notice is there is because public resource has scanned it, affixed that copyright notice, basically, sort of from what i understand like kind of begging a lawsuit and and uh putting it all on on the internet so i i i know that i've benefited from sort of <laughs> from sort of using using those pdfs in my practice and and i know maybe some of what you guys are doing is sort of uh you know like making making those things in a kind of like a uh, that same inf- putting that same information up in a like web 2.0 accessible sort of sort of format um but so so anyway, just just to kind of put that out there for the listeners. Um, but I, you know, so what like who 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 are these standards developing organizations? Like what that what they they haven't been unsuccessful in court historically. Like what are the arguments that they use to kind of defend their positions um, on like copyright and 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 why why are they why why are those arguments sort of faulty? Right. So. Yeah, so your your point about them not being unsuccessful is true. Um, I and I think I would say, I would emphasize that most of their success has been in burying people in legal fees. Uh, so mm-hmm. if you don't have enough money to fight back, and you're going to need about uh, a, about a million dollars to fight a lawsuit against them, then you can't do your startup anymore. <laughs> um, so I think I think that's where most of their success comes from. Um, their argument is, uh, you know, we. We provide a very uh, um, important service to you know keep keep uh, communities safe, which you know we totally agree with. Uh, they say they can do it more efficiently than the government, which also very well might be the case, especially you know given that uh, so many volunteers are willing to donate their time to write the codes. Mm. So they argue that with without um, basically having a control of the law and kind of uh, being able to you know sell access to it. Um, they can't um, they can't make money and stay in business, hmm. you know, but but one thing about that. So the, the, you'll hear them. They, they constantly repeat that. Um, and, mm-hmm. it, and it seems pretty sensible. But with ICC, for example, uh, most of their money actually comes from program services. So consulting, accreditation, uh, training programs. Yeah. Um, so, you know, to this date, we've never heard them respond to that point. You know, they always say we can't we can't do this without, you know, limiting access to the law, we say, but you, you can, you make right. most of your money elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. So I, I would love to hear them respond to that at some point. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I know that um, in, in you know, one of the things that I'm very interested in um, is sort of ASHRAE, Standard 90.1. I have a research interest in that, a kind of political interest in that. That's the um, the code governing insula- insulation. It's, all, it's almost a joke on the show now. We talk about big insulation. Um, but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, like, uh, uh, but, but uh, you know, that's the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, uh and air air conditioning engineers, I think. Uh, and um, anyway, um, 
and they're they're a huge a huge kind of entity. And I know that one of the kind of lawsuits said that um, you know you have these companies they came to a compromise, and the companies have to have like some sort of like public access version of their code. Like you know it doesn't necessarily need to result in a kind of down like downloadable PDF file. But so anyway, it's they're impossible to find. Like I know when I try to look it up on the on, on the Ashray website, like it's there, but I have to like know exactly like which 10 web pages to click through and then I look at it and it's like a PDF viewer that is like you know the size of an index card (laughs) (laughs) I don't know like yeah I I don't know maybe maybe I'm answering my own question about why why that's kind of insufficient Uh, but (laughs) but I'll throw it out to you guys to get your perspective why why is that sort of thing insufficient yeah, and it's a really interesting question. Um, I always come back to this story. Uh, that's actually from ancient Rome. Ah. There's an emperor uh, named Gaius, and Emperor Gaius was uh, basically a dictator, and he was jailing all of his citizens uh, for kind of arbitrary laws, so he would kind of make them up on the spot. Mm. There was kind of a mass revolt uh, among the people saying, you can't, you can't throw us in jail if we don't know what the rules are. <laughs> so he, he eventually came to a compromise where he said, I, OK, I will post the rules publicly. So he wrote them in the smallest font and he put them 20 floors up um, <laughs> on, a, on a building so that no one could read them. But they were posted publicly. So we, we, we like to come back to that story. You know, you can you can say, um, OK, we'll post we'll post the, pu- the laws publicly. And then I'll, then you can make a viewer where you have to register to sign in. The registration uh, process is very lengthy. And then you have to manually flip through each page like yeah. the NFPA. Yeah. So it's just you, you can provide some access that looks good in the court. But in reality, you just got to buy the book. Yeah. 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 Then, so go ahead or go ahead. Yeah, just say so. So technically, they've, they've met that that requirement. Like you, you can see the the text, but you can't actually work with it. You, right. you can't you can't hyperlink. You can't copy it and paste it into an email. And we, we're actually uh, talking to a, a I believe is a kindergarten um, teacher who's doing an expansion on on their on the kindergarten yeah. or daycare. And um, uh, they're uh, talking to the fire marshal and having a debate with the fire marshal who had challenged her on some of these code issues. Mm. Um, and in in the response in the rebuttal to to these to the fire marshal's um, complaint, she needed to copy and uh, and quote portions of, of the code. Mm. And with a lot of these people, you can't actually get that. You can't work with the code, so it's 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 almost useless if you can't actually operate on it. Yeah. Um. So so that that's one interesting point. And and another one is uh the the um, blockage to innovation being built on top of that. Mm. If you can't start to operate and work with these these codes. Um, there's no way interesting companies and new workflows will be introduced to the industry right. if, you, if you can't have access. So what do you mean by that? Like, uh, does that mean sort of figuring out ways to like, you know, have these codes like play nice with some of the design software that we use in, in the industry so that there's like a, degree, a degree of like automation that's or, or like what is that? What does that look exactly. like? Okay. Yeah, exactly. And in, in fact, one of our products, Upcodes AI, we take BIM models. So we'll take a Revit model and automatically scan it for compliance issues. So kind of like a spell check for compliance. Right. Um, we'll see. Uh, uh, we'll look at the geometry, look at the metadata, and say, hey, you know, certain portions of this building are not up to code. Yeah. Um, so that's a process of of taking kind of the data, taking the parameters from yeah. the code, extrapolating that, and and creating a new workflow that can make 
us architects more and more efficient. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I know that cause that's, that's one of the, the, the primary ways that a lot of small architecture offices kind of lose their shirts financially speaking is, you know, you get something wrapped up in, in the city and, and it can really just kill a, kill a project. Um, I know, I know like every architect has lived that reality in some way, shape or form at least once. Um, so I know something like that would be really valuable. I imagine that the municipalities, uh, would be interested in something like that too, uh, but I'm not sure. I mean, what, what's what is the kind of reaction been when when you're kind of talking about this stuff, uh, the city and local governments? Like, what do they do? They have anything? Have you have you had any interactions? Yeah, so so we've talked to a lot of the AHJs or, or local municipalities or, or even the, yeah. some state governments and, yeah. so and uh, governing a- bodies. AHJs, authorities having jurisdiction. This is a people who are in charge of the building (laughs) right yeah um so so we've talked with them and and they've been very um um supportive of this idea i think they are buckling under the pressure of reviewing all these plans and i think it's very uncommon to find a building department who's not uh, feeling the pressure of all these these uh permit applications coming in so if we can make them more efficient as well um so so not just the um, the client side or the designer side making these buildings more compliant, but also help the plans reviewers actually review the building. Yeah. You make both sides more efficient and make that process much, much quicker. Yeah. Um, so the conversations have been really fruitful and very, very positive saying, hey, you know, if we can automate some of this process of checking, catch some of this low hanging fruit, it'll leave you um, um, to look for the more complicated items right. uh, and process more of these applications. Um, through. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I know. I know. In in Chicago, you know, we have this kind of. Uh, I think they they've sunsetted the program, but it was the we had you had to become a registered energy professional to apply for a building permit in the city for a long time, and uh, it was it was a really weird program. You like emailed some like a guy, and uh, I I forget his name. He was a really nice guy, so no, nothing against the guy, but you emailed some guy <laughs> who was not a city employee. Like he he worked for I think he might have been an ICC employee, in fact, but I, I don't don't quote me on that. Um, but uh, you know, then you would go and take this class. Um, and it was on the energy code, uh, which was happened to be ASHRAE 90.1. And then uh, when you were signing away for your applying for your permit, um, you, you would basically sign a document that says, I, the architect, uh, have reviewed my design against ASHRAE standard 90.1. And as a registered energy professional, like it is, I certify it as being correct. And, uh, and, and I don't think that, I mean, I see construction happening all the time in my neighborhood and I'm not an, an expert eye. And I, I look at it and I know that it doesn't meet the energy code. Uh, and so like it, it is because the architect techs are literally just being like, yes, <laughs> I, I did the thing. Um, and so I don't know, like you see this all the time and you're like, you know, we, we, we face like uh, this energy crisis, like there's all this stuff going on in the world and you're just like, like, huh, like this just does not, this whole system seems kind of uh, broken, um, which I guess is like a really long roundabout way of kind of asking like, what, like, what do you think the outcome will be if you guys sort of, um, uh, 
you know, get win win the lawsuit, right? Or like, you know, uh, like if if this fight is sort of like won, like what is the kind of like utopian vision for, <laughs> uh, for like a code environment that kind of wor- works to for everyone? What what does that look like? Yeah. So yeah. So that's a really good question, and and I want to mention quickly. Um, New York uh, Department of Buildings is is doing something similar in a self certification where people can say, "Hey, I'm going to skip part of this plans review process and self certify." So self stamp it, yeah. uh, which is a really interesting um, kind of way. I think some parts of the industry are moving. Um, and then to go back to your to the second part, you know, what's the utopia? I think I think that's both ourselves. Um, automating a lot of this process, trying to catch as many of these errors upstream as possible. Mm. Um, so you look at the amount of construction rework due to code compliance issues, and that that's totally wasted money. Like yeah. that, that is expense um, that, that really doesn't need to happen. And a lot of it originates upstream in, in design. So um, for us, we'd love to minimize that waste in construction and, and really all through the process, like permitting, like, like we talked about. Um, and, and that's just for us, but we would love to see a thriving ecosystem of tools that that architects, homeowners can use to navigate through these these codes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think if you you know if if we're successful in the in the lawsuit and and people can really start operating, I think I think we'll see a really uh, uh, interesting world with a lot of different tools, um, uh, making this process a whole lot e- easier and starting to eliminate a lot of the inefficiencies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I also think maybe, you know, one of one of the challenges with fights like this is like, I mean, like on some level, like it's it's like all so boring until you like dig into it a little bit, you know, and you're like, wait, you're telling me that like the law is copywritten like that. That's interesting. Uh, But like, you know, at the end of the at the end of the day, it's kind of building codes. Right. And like you can sign it kind of sound like a like a wonky, like, you know, dork. for lack of a better word, like when you're, when you're bringing this stuff up, um, you know, I, like how, how do you guys, how do you guys talk about this at dinner, at dinner parties? At least like, I don't know, like that, like I, maybe <laughs> for the, I don't, the, Jamie's looking at me. Is that a weird question for a radio host to ask Jamie? Uh, how do you talk about codes at dinner parties? Yeah, yes. yes. Well, it is. you know, like <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to promote this show better, Jamie, because this is what we talk about all the time. <laughs> Just don't talk about codes at dinner parties. Don't do it. That's talk- my advice. Talk about it on publicly on the radio. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I'm just saying, if you want to stay with your loved ones, though, you know, uh, don't don't talk about codes at dinner parties. <laughs> not yeah, good, not good I, first date topic. Yeah, right. <laughs> keep it, keep it for the third or f- for fourth date at least. Yeah. <laughs> so, next question: How are y'all's dating lives? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'll, I'll add to that. I think, I think, uh, yeah, we agree with Jamie. We try not to bring it up. Uh, yeah. We also, I have to get Scott to stop pointing out compliance errors in people's <laughs> buildings. Uh, that's a little party trick that uh, he likes doing. <laughs> Telling people like get sued for various things yeah. very not very ingratiating <laughs> very few restaurants you'll go to that doesn't have at least one code compliant error <laughs> yeah. yeah well i mean but, I, yeah I'll, but, i think i think more seriously though, when we're trying to maybe relate it to people um yeah. uh you know we one of the things we like to quote is you know uh, the national association of home builders did a study and they found that something like 24 percent of a building of the price of a, of a, of a building or apartment is from uh, compliance, so that might mm. be zoning. Not 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 everything that we solve, you know, or yeah. help with, but but a lot of it we we do. And so, 
how it translates to people. It, yeah, it's, it might be this seem like this esoteric thing, but in reality, people are paying more for their apartments because and their houses uh, because of this very arcane compliance uh, uh, situation. Yeah. Yeah, I know it, it's it is it is tough. Um, you know, I th- I also know that um, you know this this issue of standards by reference. Like, even if you're, if you're not a buildings person, um, architecture is not the only kind of industry where this this is an issue. Um, and so, I'm I'm curious if you know of any other if you if you have any kind of like allies out there from other industries who are who are kind of think, thinking through this. I know I know for instance. Uh, you know, b- bankers have like there's standards that are uh, written by standards developing organizations for banking, and a lot of the the kind of pri- it's they're written by private industries uh, or industry associations. So like literally, it's the kind of bankers like being like, hey, we 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 develop these standards for ourselves. How would you like to incorporate them into the law? Which as like a kind of leftist, uh, you know, I I've I've, I've not read these standards, of course, and I'm sure some of them are very good and helpful. And, and nice, but like you know, as as a leftist, it kind of makes me go like, <laughs> like, well, well, what? Like, uh, so, but I, I know that's kind of one one instance. Um, are, are there any? Are there any others? Have you have you guys heard of any of these things? I think there are a lot of different instances. Um, yeah, yeah, like like you mentioned that one. Um, I, for us, you know, we're um, you know we we have a you know smaller network than someone like Carl Malamud mm. or. Um, you know, we're we're coming from this from the architecture angle. I mean, so Scott was an architect. I worked at another AEC startup called PlanGrid uh, mm-hmm. before. So you know, we're we're not coming at this from the like advocacy angle. That, that was yeah. not the intention of this. So y- y'all, you know, this, y'all just want to make life easier for architects. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so we're we're mostly just focused on building our product, and we try to spend as little time on the lawsuit as possible, although it, it really takes up a, a lot of time and, and resources. Um, but you know, so far we haven't actually tried to network with those other people. Hmm. Um, so we, but, but we have got a lot of help from, um, folks like Carl Malamud or the electronic frontier foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 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 And so like what, 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 what else, um, I mean, like, what what are what are the kind of next steps in in this lawsuit for you guys? Where are you where are you at right now? Yeah, so we're uh, I think both sides right now are writing the motions for summary judgment, mm-hmm. and what that means is we both submit uh, motions to the court. Uh, it's most likely that we won't go to trial because there's not a lot of facts that are disputed here. You know, mm-hmm. we we agree they they convened the committees that wrote the um, the codes, and uh, they agree that these codes have uh, legally binding uh, carry carry the force of law mm-hmm. um, and you know we agree that we we took them and put them on our site so both sides right now it's, it's more of a legal question can you copyright the law is that constitutional so right now you know I think uh, our lawyer and, and their lawyers are writing the, the the briefs and those will get submitted on August 2nd or 3rd mm. and then the judge has a unlimited amount of time to make a decision Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so the, these uh, these things move at a very glacial pace. Sure. Um, and we've been in this litigation for over a year and a half, and um, and this is just at the uh, at the district level. So it has the potential to go to circuit and and even potential to go beyond that to supreme. Mm-hmm. So it could be a multi year um, um, course. 
yeah. uh, or trajectory. So, um, so very long time. So, um, and and from our perspective, we we would love for it to go to the Supreme Court because once it goes to the Supreme Court and they make a decision, then that is binding across the entire nation. Right. Right now, if you so there was a very clear case in the Fifth Circuit, uh, VEC uh, SBCCI versus VEC. Uh, where it was said you can't copyright the law. And, and the SPCCI, by the way, went on to become ICC. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, so ICC basically lost in the Fifth Circuit, but they just sue us in a different circuit. So we're being sued in the Second Circuit. I see. So, but once the Supreme Court makes a decision, then, then they can't sue anyone anywhere anymore. I see. So you guys are trying to go all the way. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I th- and I think, you know, like I said, I, I feel like this is one of those issues that, you know, um, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I may, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like if it, it really does cut across a number of political perspectives that, you know, the law should be kind of, people should be able to see it without having to like, you know, uh, shell out. I mean, these are not cheap books. They're like, you know, a couple hundred dollar books often like and, and, and a lot of times you need you know the standards reference other standards so if you really want to get a good look at like the whole kind of constellation of codes um, and standards then I mean I mean you could be it it, it just adds adds up and, and then they get republished every you know two years or whatever um, and so I um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's like a kind of <laughs> that 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 seems to be like a, a kind of obvious problem. Uh, 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 no matter which direction you're looking at it from, but do you have a kind of sense of maybe like how how the Supreme Court would look at this, being that it's kind of full of Trump appointees now who like are are maybe. Uh, who might who who might be the ones to actually find a, a bad way to look at this thing? Uh, a kind of I, you know, I don't for lack of a better question. Yeah. So well, so we can look to one case, um, and this was I think it was over a hundred years ago, called the Manchester versus Banks case. In that case, um, the someone was trying to copyright the Supreme Court opinions, mm. so the Supreme Court would. Um, basically clarify the laws. Yeah. And, and then I, I don't remember exactly if it was the Supreme Court themselves, but someone was claiming copyright on those opinions. And that went to the Supreme Court itself. And it was ruled that what the judges say is, is binding on citizens and it, it helps clarify the law and you cannot copyright that. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's one clear case there. I, I think in terms of the um, cutting across the political spectrum, I think, I think that's very true because you can view this as a uh, citizen's right thing where you're saying, um, you know, like kind of like consumer protection almost, like mm. the citizens need to be able to hold the government accountable. Um, but then on kind of on the other end of the spectrum, you have like libertarians who are saying like, um, they, you know, I, I should have the right to do all these different things, including reading my own laws. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I know that like my, m- for me personally, my, my sort of utopian solution to, to this would be to, to, to just nationalize the standards developing organizations. I mean, I think that it's like I, it clear that, you know, developing codes is a kind of like important thing to do in, in a society. 
um, and that you know that 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 something that should be kind of done like relatively insulated uh, from kind of private industry, right? Um, maybe mm-hmm. not entirely, right. but I know I know that that I know for me that's 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 my dream is that the SDOs would become nationalized. But uh, wow, uh, that that's a whole that's a whole different world, and and seems uh, like impossibly uh, sort of like wonky. It's I don't know that I'm gonna you know be able to like get a bunch of people out on the streets for that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and and one of the things is you, you look at the incentives, right? So when you have a private organization whose whose goal is to make money, and 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 these organizations make a lot of money, by the way. Mm. Um, they, so, for example, like a lot of people have have kind of asked for a six year development cycle for the mm. codes. But you know what? If you if if the codes only roll out every six years, that's half the amount of book sales. Right. So <laughs> that's not in their uh, in their in their best interest. So yeah. it's it's kind of a misalignment of incentives. Yeah. Um, right. Because they want to be pushing out m- more updated codes all the time. Um, mm-hmm. So we've only got a few minutes left. Uh, is there anything that I that I, ha- I this is like the worst question for an interviewer to ask? Is there anything I like? Is there anything else that I haven't asked or that you guys want to talk about that I haven't brought up yet or or, or anything like that? I know it's an unfair. Not that I can think of uh, off the top, <laughs> off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I mean, we I think yeah. we covered a lot of it, and and I just want to throw in one one more thought yeah. there and kind of. You know, saying this this cuts across a lot of, of uh, different industries and, and and groups. You know, you can really zoom out and say this this is like a fundamental question for democracy. Mm-hmm. Do citizens have the ability to to read and write, or not write, but but uh, uh, speak and and redistribute their their own laws? Yeah. Um, and I, and I think you know this is a really interesting question that that originates in in, in architecture and what we're finding now, but has pretty severe implications across the country. Yeah. Um, for for everybody. Yeah. Um, so, um, so go, and and going way back in, earlier in the conversation, you know, at, at the dinner parties, um, <laughs> that's that's something everyone can can uh, can you know understand and 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 feel like. You know, do you have the ability to to yeah. read your own law? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a great place for us to end. Um, where can folks find out more information about Upcodes? Um, so on our site, we host a bunch of information. There's also a bunch of articles out there that I think are, are really good in, in unpacking a lot of uh, the, the legal issues here. Um, so even a quick Google search will bring up a lot of uh, interesting articles. Mm-hmm. Our page up.co's forward slash free law uh, has a bunch of more information about the lawsuit, including a bunch of case law that, uh, that's interesting. All right. Uh, so if you want to nerd out, uh, get, get wonky. Uh, Get your your stock of facts straight for your, for all of those for all those date conversations. Y'all know where to go. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Garrett, thanks so much for coming on Buildings on Air, uh, and good luck with everything. Yeah, thank you very much for having us. Thanks for your time. If you enjoy listening to Buildings on Air and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. All right, uh, welcome back to Buildings on Air. 
you're still listening to the show where we talk about architecture and politics. Uh, I also, I, I'm, I'm not, I can't remember if I did it at the top of the show, uh, but shout out to Baz, uh, my friend, my friend of the show, Baz. You yeah, did. I mean, you I would, do it again. Yeah, I'm going to do it again. I mean, and also just to make the the point that you know, if uh, you've got a good idea for buildings on air segment, you want to be on the show yourself because you do a cool thing. I might, you know, uh, s- send us a note. It might happen. It might not. But um, you know, we're we're always open. To, to that sort of thing. So if you've, you've got something that you think is buildings on air appropriate, uh, hit us up, tag us on the Twitter, uh, and it might happen for you. Um, anyway, uh, now we are in the, uh, for now, the Critics Corner uh, with Anjali Rao. How's it going? Good, Kiever. How are you doing? I'm doing so well. Um, and I think we're, are we ready to debut the new name? I mean, we said that, you know, we we're going to stay with Critics Corner for a minute until we thought of something better. And we might, we might have over beers, yes, of course. Several. Yes. <laughs> it was my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> it was your birthday. And I, and I think the exact quote was, it was, it was after the last Bill Alexander even. And I think the exact quote was, uh, I just want to like, I just want to be, be fun and angry. I just want to, <laughs> right? Was yeah. that? Yeah. And I was like, that's Personal it. Goal. That's it. That's the one. <laughs> that's the name. Uh, so welcome to Fun and Angry fun and with angry. Kiefer, Dan, and Andre. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I think we also agreed that uh you know we'll we'll switch maybe many times during the segment who who is fun and who is angry yeah today i'm angry <laughs> today you're angry i'm angry i'm, I'm feeling fun today I'm yeah glad. <laughs> I'm, glad. I'm glad yeah you know often it's angry but you know yeah. today's fun yeah. yeah i'm filled with rage okay <laughs> and speaking of rage yes today we're talking about an article written by richard florida yes by richard florida uh who who usually does write articles that i don't know if they get me like rage filled but usually when like richard florida like city lab it's like a bunch of people and, and and maybe it's not because the articles are bad, but because they generate just like so much like uh, like conversational cloud around them, like in the discourse yeah. that it tends to be just I, 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 I tend to find the whole enterprise exhausting. Um, now, this article came out. It's called Build More, quote, Build More Housing, end quote, is No Match for Inequality by Richard Florida. And and I got to say, I th- I thought this was a real, real banger. I, I read this one and I was like, all right, my dude. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but 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 you're feeling angry. So maybe yeah. maybe you didn't like it so well, much. I don't first know. First of all, whenever I, again, whenever I read a Richard Florida piece it, these days, I my first reaction is to be like, of course, Dick Florida walks into the room and everyone like turns their head. But, you know, um, I think after the whole creative class situation, sure. um, there I am filled with a little bit of doubt, you know, yeah. um, you know, based on his sort of theories that there is like uh, – it's like more applicable, not you know, to um, the nuances of how people live versus like economics or something. So, g- give us some background on that. What is the the creative class? Oh, thing? okay, yeah, yeah, the creative class. Um, when was that? It was like twenty ten. I don't yeah. remember. A long, a long time, time ago. ago. I was in college or something. Um, but it's the idea that um, no, it was before then. Gosh, it was like must have been two thousand five. Okay, um, it's the idea that um, an economic driver for cities these days is this new class of people called the creative class, mm-hmm. and um, you know, with the idea of like Google and um, sort of like a tech creative workers as being the next kind of economic driver in yeah. cities, and that cities should cater to them if they want yeah. to attract that and. 
Um, some cities really did sort of adopt some of his policies, which were not necessarily um, super detrimental, but then other cities really took his theories to heart, um, often Rust Belt cities, uh, mm. and really suffered. Um, you know, building up, uh, spending a lot of money on um, pedestrian-friendly and, uh, yeah. you know, spaces for shopping and eating, yeah. um, only to find that, like, there really isn't the um, consumption there uh, yet, maybe. Um, And it's funny because now we're sort of like living at the tail end of that theory where folks go around to places like Oklahoma City and they come back and they're like, wow, every city is the same. You know, you get that like kind of like bad take on Twitter of like people saying like, oh, every city now has a ramen shop and every city (laughs) has like a cute bakery, um, which can sometimes feel true, but sort of exists at the tail end of this creative post-creative class um, warming that happens. Yeah. Well, and I'm and I'm certainly no expert or or even avid reader on on Richard Florida. My my understanding is that he himself has kind of uh, walked some of those initial ideas back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in, in during his kind of purview as as a, I think he's a, he's like the guy, the city lab guy. Or yeah. Like a, yeah. 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 He's a big deal. Yeah. Um, but I will say, so this article is interesting to me because. Um, Florida sort of walks through the um, well, actually, I can't even say that. So that I I was immediately taken aback by the article because it sort of opens up with the idea that um, maybe he pre- he presents the idea that like build more, build denser. Um, it is what most people say when they want to reduce housing costs, but that's not the case. But then the rest of the article, he doesn't really talk about that at all. Oh, interesting. He talks about the the study, this London mm-hmm. School of Economics study that was recently published. Um, and uh, the study itself isn't really about um, building denser as a way to, or you know, like does it actually alleviate housing costs? It talks about inequality. Mm-hmm. Um, it talks about uh, sort of the idea that um, who's actually benefiting from things like upzoning right. um, and why. Yeah. And and there's a lot more nuance to it than just like oh it's not going to help solve housing right. Like I think I that see. it's very reductive in the beginning yeah. and then sort of goes on to talk about the richness of this, mm. of the paper. And I, I spent some time with the actual paper itself, mm. um, which That's I good. didn't fully understand because <laughs> if I did, they would tenure me somewhere. Uh, but so uh, I think that really what the key idea is, is that this group, this, this duo of scholars is trying to connect the idea that housing, labor, um, and inequality sort of exist in this um, tub drain, yes. right? And they're sort of chasing each yeah. other. Um, but don't exactly touch on the fact that, like, you can't really make these immediate connections, right? That, like, um, housing uh, abundance leads to less inequality in a city. Yeah. We can't really make that immediate connection. Um, can we make the immediate connection that like greater amounts of housing means more jobs for skilled and unskilled laborers? Mm. Can, we can't exactly make that connection. Right. Um, so that's, I think, what the yeah. premise of the article talks about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I, I felt like uh, the article did a, because um, I, I, and this is, I did not dig into the 
the paper very fully at all. I I I I I, I did a quick skim <laughs> to, to make sure that it was you know uh, it wasn't like total to, yeah right. But yeah. but I, you know I I did feel like I mean and I don't know this this episode of Buildings on Air we're kind of revisiting a couple of old Buildings on Air saws. You know mm-hmm. one one about codes and and the the other one about kind of you know uh, it's 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 the land stupid sort of uh, yeah. you know the argument about you know how the, how housing crisis um and which both things we've kind of talked about on the show before um you know we we had a, a great interview with Karen Narevsky that I reference often and then recently we had Yona Freemark uh whose study gets kind of shouted out at the end of this article <clears throat> on the show also and i think that you know for me like especially Yona Freemark he, he brought a lot of like nuance to the discussion where he was basically like look like i'm doing one study of one area mm-hmm. and like of course like like, you know, more housing, like, is not in and of itself, like, a bad thing. But, like, maybe the study shows that in and of itself it is not a good thing either. And um, and, and I and – I, so I, I did appreciate that, you know, I mean, like it or not, Richard Florida is someone who kind of has – you know, when 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 he speaks, a lot of a lot of people listen, especially people beyond architecture, which I think is really important. And so I thought it was really v- kind of valuable uh, to see, um, uh, you know, this this kind of line of like, you know, hey, like it's not as easy as just building more because yeah. it, it's not as simple as like a supply and demand problem where there's, you know, not enough supply and too much demand. So the prices go up. It, it's you know, I think the quote that he that that he grabs from the study, which I was like, you know, I don't. I'm, I'm like raising my fists in, in, in applause, like uh, sort of. You know, is that the, an angry? Ra- it's, it's, a, like, it's a. It's a. It's like a yes, 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 okay. yes. Okay. Yeah, sort of, sort of get gesture. Is the the? Did uh, you just say rabble, 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 rabble? <laughs> yeah. This, the quote is the the affordability crisis within major urban areas is real, uh, but it is due less to overregulation of housing markets than to the underlying wage and income inequalities and a sharp increase in the value of central locations within metro areas as employment and amenities concentrate in these places which i was like yes like that is right on the money right like if housing affordability is not an issue of like you know arcane urban policy i mean like those things have impacts on it but like I, I, when you get down to the brass tacks it's an issue about inequality in america which mm-hmm. is rampant i mean like we living in a new gilded age right mm-hmm. and like that's the problem like and I like full stop. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, my my issue kind of um, comes to the idea that like, how do we cre- like, how can we talk about these things in like an overarching yeah. way in the United States? We're like, we're looking at um, affordable housing issues in San Francisco. But I might even just sort of argue that like, well, San Francisco's kind of far gone now, right? <laughs> like, um, the reason why yeah. building there is so expensive is because there's no housing for laborers to build that housing to live right. in anywhere near there so it's sort of like well but like i i appreciate like i think about this i always kind of bring these things back to chicago um, whenever i'm reading them and um i uh sort of take a little bit of issue with um new models that recently um just this week uh skender Mm. manufacturer skender as a company um they have opened their um house factory essentially they're (laughs) um, creating modular housing for chicago and they're building their first 10 units um in burnett's 27th ward which is the west side of chicago Mm. um and the developer is sterling bay which 
you know, we all have feelings about them and they are all not good ever. Um, <laughs> and so I was just sort of like thinking about how the like how detrimental can it be to produce 100 new homes and plop them onto the west side of Chicago. And it gives me a lot of anxiety yeah. <laughs> um, to think about how um, how that's being done. Because, A, my first inclination is, is East Garfield Park, that neighborhood specifically, is sort of on a tipping point, right? Mm. It can, It is rapidly being gentrified. Housing prices are going up. Um, I am currently trying to buy a house in Chicago, and ah. I can't seem to find anything that I can afford, and I make a livable wage. So yeah. I've, I'm, I kind of sense that, like, okay, these 10 homes will kind of be plopped down, um, and at what price price point are they going to be starting at, right? So to me, thinking that, like, as more uh, affluent Chicagoans move to this neighborhood, it's going to raise the AMI, Mm -hmm. um, which is the uh, area median income. Um, And so if you're making, if affordable in this situation, like these homes are being made affordable to people making 90% of the AMI, if AMI is at $120,000 for a family of four, that's still quite a bit of money at 90%. So like, there's a lot of excitement around the idea of like, we're building, we have the capacity to build so much more housing now, so much faster and more efficiently. Um, But as uh, we find ourselves in a situation um, in which AMI is only going up, who is going to be the buyer for this? And what does affordable look like? Is it going to look like uh, white millennials, for mm. example? Is that who we're building affordable housing for? Not to mention the fact that truly markets in Chicago vary block by block, right? That like one totally. block is going to be more intact and will have higher market values than the next yeah. block. So you're looking at just inequity within 250 feet. Yeah. Um, so I can't fully – I mean – my problem is, is yeah, like that. Um, you should never ever argue against building more housing. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, no. And I, I, you know, I remember, like, I mean, we've talked about it. Like, urbanist Twitter is the worst Twitter. I it's know. the it's it is it is just like you you know you can you can say something and like people interpret it in forty different ways, and then eighty different people will weigh in, and like before you know it, it's just like the volume is like just it's 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 insane. Um, it's it's ne- it, like and and we I talked with that with Jonah Freemark, uh, but like I think um, I mean like I, you know one of the one of the things that did come up um, you know friend of the show Catherine Darnstadt sort of brought up this I- issue of like well you know when when you know Sears homes were first being proposed like or like if you look at a neighborhood like Pullman where a lot of things were built in a kind of like a prefabricated way like there's there is a kind of issue that you know th- those things were perceived to be kind of boring and bad at mm-hmm. the time and it had like an association with either like a, I don't know like all kinds of different things um, and 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 now they're kind of like coveted and they're and the wholesome. quintessential Chicago home yeah, yeah yeah and 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 um and I don't know I I feel like that's that is an interesting an interesting viewpoint but you know for for me uh what's different now is that 
I mean, like, is that buildings, frankly, are already like kind of modular now, just mm-hmm. like even yeah. if they're not yeah. even if they're not like like prefabrication is like one thing. But like, I mean, you know, everything comes flat packed. It's like, you know, like a two by four in, in plywood like that. The, the It's 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 that is the result of, you know, modernist standardization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't look like the popular mechanics sort of, you know, we built your house somewhere and like sort of in pieces and are like, mm-hmm. you know putting it on a site in trucks and bolting it together yeah but but it, it's it's modular and building is is cheap a lot of times the reasons why i think that they're doing something like you know putting these out in 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 a neighborhood like east garfield park is it's because it's one of the only places where the land is cheap enough to make the return like the return on investment numbers work but that's For- why we have such an interesting case study right yeah. that like we don't have this like land value issue we have plentiful vacant land that city and county own well some neighborhoods do right yeah. like the, the the well like logan square now has yeah. this issue wicker park has this issue which is like which tells you of like everything you need to know about this question for me it's like you know it's it's an issue it's like it, it it's an issue that speaks to like racism mm-hmm. it's an issue that speaks to income inequality like it, it, it you know like yeah but like i mean okay so then there's land and like quote unquote undesirable undesirable or less desired areas um which yeah, so there a while ago the city of chicago piloted this um housing for first responders mm. program um in which they built homes for police officers and firefighters um on the south and southwest sides um which a well it just failed it <laughs> failed because no one wanted to buy those homes first of all mm. second of all a two income household where one of that one of those people is a police officer or a firefighter they made they made way too much money to really qualify for mm. affordability mm-hmm. um so that's the first problem. The second problem is they built these nice new homes in these neighborhoods that have been neglected um, by the city that has that, uh, essentially been emptied out. Mm. Um, and then you have something that banks love to call the affordability or the I'm sorry, the um, the appraisal gap. Mm. So you get like this very valuable home that no bank wants to give you a loan for. Um, yeah. And so to me, it's like, great, great, great. Let's just like take all the modular homes and we'll put them in these neighborhoods and then we'll get Sterling Bay to pay that appraisal gap. Mm. So that way people who make you know, 60, 30 to 60% AMI can afford to get a good quality loan um, without the anxiety from the bank. Like, make Mm. the developer pay for that. Mm -hmm. Um, Call it a subsidy. I don't know. Like, call it whatever you want. But uh, I... That's sort of like a way to me that like you can create actual infill housing um, without like putting the risk on the homeowner um, and, and actually like creating land value that way. But I mean, with specifically in this issue, like, Again, applying it to like a national scale, I was thinking a lot about Denver, um, where I lived for a long time, um, which was incredibly cheap and uh, now is unbelievably expensive. And the the main point when I was perusing kind of the um, London School of Economics study was the idea that um, essentially like the big takeaway for me that I kind of forget is that when um, you build volumes of housing, housing costs tend to decrease. But for those in making like in in the top 50% of incomes Mm. in America, right? Mm -hmm. So that's when housing costs go down. Um, Housing costs have consistently gone up for people in the bottom half of incomes in America. So like in Denver, um, they have a glut of new housing um, because they had a, a, you know, a rush of tons and tons of new residents. Um, But they were finding that they were building these things and rents were kind of going down a little bit 
but they're going down from $1,490 a month to about $1,390 a month. Yeah. Which is not an affordable rent price, right? <laughs> right? That is not affordable, especially considering the fact that there are still people in Denver who are from Denver or have spent a long time there and are still receiving wages that, you know, are, reflect when they moved there in 1999. So to me, it's it's like they were seeing this like vacancy rate um, in these like brand new bright and shiny condominiums and apartment buildings that they were building. Um, and it was really challenging because they couldn't find anyone who would afford who would be able to afford to buy them or to pay those rents so they're seeing vacancy in their brand new development while rents were only going down for you know the upper middle class and then on top of that you get the city of of Denver, the mayor, uh, Hancock, decided that he's like, well, maybe we should buy up some of these vacant condos or apartments and use them as our affordable housing because we as a city refuse to actually build for people making less than 120 percent AMI. Right. It's insane. And then, of course, like developers, they won't let up. They're still building. Um, and the people that are seeing those housing decreases uh, are people who don't necessarily need to see housing cost decreases. Right. Yeah. And I, I think Florida does point this out, you know, quote, quoting the study, which we should say, by the way, is, is uh, published in the journal Urban Studies, uh, and it's called Housing, Urban Growth and Inequalities by Andres Rodriguez uh, Pose uh, and Michael Storper. Um, anyway, so... Yeah, I, but he 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 talks about how like a lot of this deregulation, like okay, sure, like it results in like I don't know, like certain incentives being there and certain prices, you know, changing. Uh, but the people who see that benefit are often the kind of landlords, which a lot yeah. of which a lot of the EMBs would say like no problem because that means we get more housing and that means that prices go down and it ends up being this kind of like weird like you know high school econ logic that doesn't actually work out <laughs> if you like look at it. Right. Like, I mean, I mean, like, and, um, um, you know, because I, I think. Hey, man, I remember being in the ninth grade in this like <sighs> yeah. intro to philosophy class and like listening to this. My teacher, he was so cute. <laughs> Mr. Baruch. Uh, he was talking about uh, he's, I remember like universalizability or something. I don't know. Um, and uh, I remember just like thinking to myself, like, this is all fine, but like. This doesn't none of this works. Yeah. Right. That like that um, market theory exists, but it doesn't take into account human beings and our unpredictability yeah. and our love for money and yeah. um, terrible things. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, like we can build as many amazing modular three flats as we want. But who's to say that that landlord is going to charge their new tenants, their two new tenants, if, assuming they're living there, yeah. um, a livable rent. Right. I mean, there's just no promise of it. So to me, it, it's just like there's a human factor yeah. that is incredibly, like, I'm, I, I'm full, filled with rage, um, that is incredibly unpredictable and um, is not really taken into account. Yeah. Well, and of course, like I mean, Marx would call this this sort of idea of econ vulgar economics, <laughs> and like you know, based on the principle of like, okay, like sure, like you know, it, it's it's like uh, you can you can tell when the the tide is going in and out mm -hmm. if you're like looking at the ocean, but like that doesn't actually help you understand like what are the fundamental forces that are like moving the ocean, right? right? Like that's like and 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 then he says you know that that's what Marxism is good at, right? Like yeah. as a, as a kind of you know way of looking at at capitalism and capital and, and economics is it tells you what the laws of motion are, not just what time the tide is going to come in and out on. Right? I mean, and I think I've said this before, but yeah. just 
just the fact that we have a consumer confidence index that like literally dictates when houses are built because it <laughs> depends on how people are feeling that yeah. day. I mean, it's nuts to me. It's it's you know when Ebola came to America, you know house house building right. went down. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right. that's insane. Right. But like, um, I'm really. Uh, the 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 last thing I really kind of jumped out at me um, was he uses uh, um, the several the, uh, the authors question several pieces of evidence that stand at the heart of this market urbanist view a perspective they dub housing as opportunity mm-hmm. and it's funny because I I think of housing as opportunity sort of differently I think than the um, authors of the study do in that it's sort of like a myth uh, like a yeah. lie that's told to us that yeah. like housing like owning a house is some kind of an opportunity um, for wealth building that um, is about the buyer and isn't necessarily about the market. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of have, I have a problem with the idea that like um, we see quote, we see like bank loans as being a a type of private investment in people's Mm -hmm. lives and Mm -hmm. their well-being. And so when we talk about inequity specifically in this, in this piece, I feel like we're not thinking about personal investments as a way of like improving quality of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that like we can put as many people in little boxes and say like, look, we have sheltered all of the people. Right, 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 but right. we're, you know, we're not looking yeah. at things like commute times. We're not looking at things right. like, um, will they have access to clean water? Right. In the city of Chicago, we're seeing a lot of homes turning up with lead. Yeah. A lot of little things right. like right. little which, things. Yeah, which is like, you know, a lot of people who kind of have that perspective, uh, like, you know, like, oh, we should plop down lots of tiny homes. Yeah. <laughs> like tiny. Let's build a lot of tiny homes for the <laughs> pores, you know, and you're like, oh, like, no, like, you know, like, because because to me, like at the end of the day, like, I, you know, I think a lot of times like the won- the wonkishness in urban policy is important. There's a space for it. Like, I'm not against it. I'm not anti-intellectual. I'm not anti-academic. I'm not anti-talking about these things, even when it's infuriating. Mm-hmm. Like, but, like, but, like, at the end of the day, like, a lot of this doesn't seem so hard. It's, like, invest in, like, the in, – in, communities that have been disinvested in mm-hmm. right like i mean there's plenty of housing everywhere in chicago in this country there's plenty of housing mm-hmm. like y- there are cities where there's acute problems and acute shortages mm-hmm. and like people are moving there and like yes we need to build more housing and that that like that's obvious it doesn't seem difficult and then like and in the places where like you know okay it's like not desirable like it's not gentrification to like fix the pipes yeah you know like i mean like we like providing a good quality of life for 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 working people for for average people is like not is not difficult it's spending public money for, on basic things see but this is this is why i'm not like anti-wonk in architecture this is why i'm sometimes anti-architecture oh i'm, like, I'm anti-architecture <laughs> all the time <laughs> i mean because i i see like i mean i'm just inundated daily with press releases about architects like we've redesigned the refugee camp yeah, it's, and it's oh I'm, it's exhausting ooh, am, it's Jamie, exhausting I almost just did the first buildings on Ericus <laughs> almost I thought you said something about hanging the architect <laughs> <laughs> 
No, but it, it's the solutionist mindset that that is is my number one pet peeve. The idea that you know, well, there's just a problem here, and design thinking can solve it. Mm-hmm. And it's a problem that's well beyond the scope of design thinking. It's a problem of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And like you, as the architect, do have a particular viewpoint on and a particular expertise on how capitalism is impacting people, like in you know, in terms of its manifestation on building. But like, there's not a design that's going to like solve this problem. Like, at, and you know, it's it's palliative. Mm-hmm. And like, there's a space for palliative things. But like, you know, what? Let's 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 stop like BSing. Let's stop being naive about this stuff. Like, join DSA. Like, join you know, like <laughs> join any join an activist organization. Join something, right? They're like whatever. Like, and, and like get involved and like fight a, fight for structural change. The architectural, whatever. Um, you know, I I, I like for. For me, like that, that, that feels like the kind of call to action rather than, you know, something, you know, or, or at least like, let's be honest about like what the impacts that we, that, that design can have. Cause I, there, it's not nil, right? It's yeah. not nil. Yeah. It's yeah. Just, it's a powerful thing. Yeah. I mean, and you know, I, I work really closely with Stephen Vance here in Chicago mm-hmm. on like ADU uh, advocacy stuff, but like I know in my heart that getting architects to design affordable ADUs in for people's backyards instead yeah. of garages or on top of garages is not going to make things better. Right. Um, because that homeowner, like I just, I know, like that homeowner is going to, even if the ADU is $75,000 to build, mm-hmm. that $75,000 in a construction loan and all of the stuff well, that goes on with it and then you have to, pay, then yeah. you're paying it off and you're going to rent it out and like all the anxiety about mm-hmm. keeping your renter, like there's a lot of stuff there that like I know it, like this is a part of the solution, right? Yeah. But it's it involves conversations with community members, with aldermen, with economists, with, you know, builders. We, there's all like this. It's a collaborative effort. And that's why I want to participate in it. Yeah, definitely. But the notion that like architecture is going to somehow magically save uh, us from all being un- underhoused or unhoused is exhausting. And yeah. there's it's not it's not real. Yeah. I mean, I, I would like to see architects become reposition themselves as kind of advocates for you know the, the the money, and I think that there's a kind of natural incentive there for architects to to go to Springfield or DC or wherever and and say, you know, like we we think that there should be public inv- like public housing, and we should invest money in a public housing. And by the way, we'll design it, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's like win 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 win. Yeah. Like I don't know, right? Like it, it, rather than sort of you know, I I, I feel like a, a lot of the times we're kind of. The, a lot of architects, well-meaning architects, liberal architects, are like competing to see, like you know, who who can like you know make austerity the most palatable, yeah. and then they call that like you know social architecture, progressive architecture. Do you know, and the, that that makes me that like I, I I cannot abide it. Yeah, do you know the in Chicago there is a current debacle over the Emmett Street affordable housing uh, development no, that um, so in Logan Square there's an essentially an empty parking lot that Lana Bone Baker proposed a kind of a, an affo- completely affordable housing complex oh, on, um, and the opposition to this project also this project it's like it's mm. speculative like there's no, there's nothing like out in the books right now like mm. you can't really get any information on it because it doesn't really exist as something that's going to be built. Um, So uh, the opposition to this project, though, 
is literally led by an architecture firm. <laughs> an architecture firm in Logan Square is saying no affordable housing. Oh, come on. And they, Who are they? <laughs> name 3410 names. 3410 is the name of the firm. Um, and it's there. there's like a real estate person involved too. And then also now, uh, I think it was his name, Mark Fishman, who's like the demon landlord of Logan Square is involved in the opposition. Um, and anyway, so there's like this whole fight going on in Logan. It's a very public fight about this affordable housing project. And, you know, Props to Lynn and Boombaker. I love them and they're amazing. Yeah. Um, truly the only firm that you can call and be like, I don't really understand how the federal government gives money for affordable housing. And they'll explain it to you in like the most legible way. Anyway, <laughs> um, so they – I kind of appreciate the fact that an architecture firm is just straight up coming out being like, we don't want poor people. Yeah. Like – it it makes it. I mean, and then they of course they they cloud uh, they cloud mm. their opposition and the idea they're like, well, there was no RFP submitted, so we don't like that there wasn't a process behind it. And Rosa's like, well, they kind of just made the thing, and I like it. Yeah, and 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 uh, I know, um, you know, uh, Mika Utrecht of uh, of Jacobin, uh, a, fr- a friend of the show, certainly uh, has uh, has his own podcast where he he had Carlos uh, Rosa, the mm-hmm. alderman, on, and they, I think they talked about this. It's ringing a bell now, and uh, you know, Carlos has a, a community driven. Uh, approvals process mm-hmm. in in his ward. So for a long time, it's just recently in the last week come to an end. There was a thing called Aldermanic uh, uh, prerogative. prerogative, where basically aldermen uh, had a kind of handshake agreement with each other that you know they would have veto power over uh, any built projects or buildings that needed z- a, a zoning change. Uh, or anything. To or put anything. a sign up, you need a... Yeah, right. Because <laughs> anything that, yeah, needs kind of the the, the city city council approval. Yeah. And so, um, and, a, and a lot of times, you know, uh, that's not necessary, but uh, like they'll, they'll, aldermen will down zone or, or way down zone something so that any, basically building anything requires a change of zoning. And so that then they can, they can exercise a ton of control over what gets built in their ward. Um, and Carlos really, I, he, in a lot of ways, he, he, he like said, okay, if that's the system, like I'm going to make it work for the people and uh, f- for everything we do, like we're going to have a big community forum and we're going to talk about it. And if we'll have a vote and if people like it, then I'll approve it. Right. Mm-hmm. Which like how amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, the, and my understanding is they had like a huge 500 person forum mm-hmm. about that project that I, I remembering from the interview now and it was like approved like people like 80 percent of the people in the room wanted it mm-hmm. which like how amazing is that for like a kind of vision of how developments like this might kind of i don't know like un- unfold right or yeah. like circumvent the the kind of you know real estate money yeah i mean there's we've digressed quite a bit but yeah, um there's <laughs> there's a i think just something that's like really pretty lovely about um the notion that uh we can we can have nice things, <laughs> um, right? We can have nice buildings, yeah. and we can have normal people live in them too. Yeah. And while we're watching cities across America evolve into what people complain as being like, 
you know, homogenous mm. ramen hosts or whatever. Um, <laughs> the ramen, the, the ramen host. Yeah, like the, the host of the ramen. Yeah. Uh, like, while we sort of, like, watch them evolve in, or maybe devolve into these things, um, everyone can get the same baked good, man. It's like going to McDonald's, only it's every baked show. Anyway, um, yeah, uh, while we watch these things happen, I really enjoy the idea that, like, the important parts are where the nuance is. Mm. Like, the important parts are where the small details are. And so, yeah, like, um, when you are go- – if you're looking to build affordable housing in any city, choose the lot. Like, <laughs> just look at the lot. Yeah. Talk to the people who live near the lot. Yeah. Like, there's, there's an intention that goes behind these things. Mm. And, you know, like, with Emmett Street's a huge development, it's taking place on an empty parking lot – and, of course, all the people that are um, against it are saying, like, well, we need parking. Yeah. That's, that's something we need, which is code for we don't like poor people. Like, yeah. that's so, like, there's it's like an argument over just one space. Yeah. And so I think that when it comes to what Richard Florida is saying that, um, you know, like, yeah, building a lot won't do anything. It's like, but if we build a lot and we do it super intentionally, mm. that could make all the difference. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I feel like it's just it's really, I feel like it's like this this these this study really cuts against the orthodoxy of a lot of conversations about sort of like urbanism, wonkish conversations about urbanism. So I, I appreciate that it's kind of been been given a platform, um, and it's not all cut and dry yeah, either, right? Exactly. We can't make a, immediate connections. Totally. Like when p- we can't say like concretely. That when we build more housing, we're going to get more people moving back to Chicago. Right. Right. We right. can't say well, that. You're right. And which is like, you know, and, and speaking of nuance, it's like one of, you know, you hear the headlines on uh, WBZ or whatever about like the city losing population. But like it's a very specific story of people from the south and west sides, mostly mm-hmm. African-American folks moving out of the city and and lots of uh, upper middle class people moving into the kind of like to the north side to your Lincoln Parks, your, your Wicker Parks, you know, yeah. like up and up Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Avenue corridor. Yeah, like that. That is a very different story than just sort of you know, ah, like we're losing people, right? And and because it, 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 it talks about you know how, like how. I don't know, like, a, a, like d- neighborhood specific desirability is really a very big driving focus force here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have my fingers crossed that we have smart people working on this. Yeah. In Chicago, we have a new mayor now. Um, mm-hmm. We have a new um, commissioner of housing, which I'm so excited about. <laughs> um, Ursa Novara, who's amazing and brilliant and just a shining star in yeah. a world of dim bulbs. Um so, yeah, I mean, I guess time will tell. Time will tell. And but fight for housing, y'all. And fight for uh, fight for affordable housing in neighborhoods like Lincoln Park. Yes. Put a for- hey, Skender, why don't you put some of your affordable units uh, well, that's, in Old Town? That's that's the thing that blows this whole myth apart, right? Is because then they wouldn't be affordable, yeah, right? It's because exactly. it's the land value. Ah! <laughs> okay, anyway, on that note, um, Richard Florida, come on Buildings on Air. <laughs> um, call us. <laughs> yeah, call us. Uh, we'd love to hear, hear your thoughts if you have any uh 
disagreements with our characterizations, we'd love to chat with you. I uh, made a t-shirt that said uh, Richard Florida is sorry. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and then, yeah, Carlos, Micah, anyone, anyone, if you hear your name on Buildings on Air. You should I, come up. You know, 34, I almost got a job at 3410. Really? When I had just graduated and needed a, a, a job and they were just opening up and I went there for an interview. Uh-huh. Uh, glad that didn't pan out, knowing what I know now. Anyway, Buildings on Air, we name names, but... but <laughs> But but not but not like that like uh, you know we 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 name the people whose names need to be named. Uh, if you're on our side, we'll we'll keep it 100. Um, anyway, Anjali, thank you so much. Thanks, Kiefer. If you enjoy listening to Buildings on Air and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. It's that time. It's time for the Buildings on Air mailbag, the segment where uh, we answer your listener questions about buildings with Anne Louie and Craig Reschke of Future Firm. How are y'all doing? Good. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. It always feels like it's been a long time since the last <laughs> time we did a mailbag, uh, yeah. but usually it's not. I uh, think this <laughs> time it has been a long yeah, time. Yeah. We've been kind of moving the schedule around now. We have been. We've been jump, jumping about, but... Yeah. Uh, We'll get back. We'll get back on that horse. One of these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe not next month, but maybe the month after. But maybe the month after. But definitely this year. Yeah. 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 I think it's because you weren't here last time. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> there was like, a, yeah. I'm oh yeah, sorry. there was last time. I just ran down the street while like, you <laughs> remained on a phone call you in the office. You were texting, and I was like, "Vamp, vamp for five more minutes." And then you're like, "It's too much vamping." Uh, <laughs> there go. was too much vamping. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. sorry, listeners. It's okay. Uh, I think it's it's always good when we when when we have the mailbag i'm always pumped by it but it's even better when when the gang's all here so don't 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 feel sad because we're just happy you're here now uh are you guys ready for some questions uh-huh um here's a i i have some good ones and and some some usual ones i'll say uh when framing a house during general construction why do builders typically use nails and not screws wooden screws make the framework stronger or more secure uh, yes, but unnecessarily so, and screws are more expensive. Yeah. All right. There's been lots of testing done on nails. Yeah. Uh, most of the time, they're, uh, like, because of the way the wood grabs them after you pound them in. Yeah. Uh, they are very secure, and, uh, yeah. 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 It's just, it an costs- unne- it's just an unnecessary expense, that's all. Yeah. I also, I also seem to remember something from my exams about, um, Nails being better in situations where there is a sheer stress on hmm. the like uh, on, relative to screws because you know screws have the thread, so the actual like shank part is thinner right. as a result, hmm. which means that if there's like a you know two pieces shearing past each other, hmm. that because there's less metal and it's usually more brittle on the screws, that it'll it'll bend it'll it'll be more likely to break though if we thought about houses more like kyle moe's stick versus stack then we might think that screws were actually a cost savings because we could disassemble the house and use the wood for something else huh. and reuse the screws whereas things that are nailed together you can't really take them apart yeah, without like destroying them yeah. when you international shipping only the you know like cheap crate makers use nails because you can't pull off the tops and reassemble them nicely. Like ah. it's about assembly and reassembly. So maybe it would be ultimately 
cheaper for the planet for us to use fixtures or fasteners yeah. that, that were kind of more more nimble. Yeah, that's what I'm going to say in our next client meeting. I know this looks expensive, but it's cheaper for the planet. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's also more nimble. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, well, I I also I also like uh, I don't know when I when I'm detailing something. Also, I the way that I think about the fasteners is that they are literally just there to kind of keep something in place. Like that is their function. Like that uh, if, if you have a fastener that is carrying a load on it, that that is like a, a like bad news, right? Like you don't want your nail to be doing like much structural work. You want it to just hold the two things together that are doing the structural work. I don't know if that makes sense, but like that's the the logic in my head when I'm thinking about structures and, and detailing these so connections. So if it were up to you, there'd be no fasteners and everything would be like beautifully butt jointed or like dovetail no, that, jointed. Just together, that, uh, that like through friction alone, right? That would be cool. Uh, I would be in like favor- a. Bird Nest, right? <laughs> no, we just but but tighten everything together. I'm 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 a I'm pro fastener, but just that like you know uh, that they th- all they do is hold things in place. <laughs> they just hold things in place. That, like yeah, that's a big job, Kiefer. It is a big, it is a big job. <laughs> but I think if if uh, if you if you detail them that way, then you know uh, the 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 relative structural strength of it doesn't really matter because it's just keeping something where it should be. So in wood frame construction, would you set your sheathing on top of the foundation wall, or do you set your sill plate right at the edge of the foundation wall so the sheathing is hanging off the the edge? I mean, I don't know. I would try to keep everything over the center of gravity of of the wall, Mm, all in a row. I always like having the sill plate right at the edge, and then you overlap the sheathing on the wall a little bit on the foundation wall so that there's no way that water can – even if your so if your drip edge fails and your um, sure. and your house wrap fails, there's no way for water to kind of wick back across the foundation wall. But then that's floating, and the fasteners are holding it up. But maybe right. in <laughs> Kiefer's like you know worldview, it is sitting on the earth below it, just because it's not sitting on foundation wall. It's still like in place well, in the 3D world. Okay. I don't well, know. I guess. <laughs> This is uh, see buildings on air where fasteners get philosophical. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. But I don't know. I guess I I have not read Kyle most text lately. But I was talking to this local architect who was talking about nest making as a way of also thinking structurally, right? And mm. that there could be a there could be a structural system that's made out of jamming, right? About the kind of assembly or aggregates of materials that are like holding together through their like relative material properties, not through fasteners. And I wonder if yeah, maybe your reluctance to use fasteners brings us more, more towards something like that. That is actually like at the most the most nimble, the most reusable, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, moving on, I this is an equally this this well. I, I'll I'll see what you guys do with this question. <laughs> what classifies a house as a mansion? Oh, this is a better question for Kate Wagner. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Like will will Kate Wagner burn it? If if so, then it is. Then it is. I was going to say garish opulence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. More, yeah. more than more than two carports. I don't know. Yeah. That's yeah. that's a lack of taste. Might. Lack of. But but see, this is where is it McMansions versus mansions? Mm. I feel like might be an angle on this one. Because you think like a really nice, expensive, well-designed house is not a mansion. Like that's just somebody's home. Yeah. 
I don't think of it as a mansion. Man, I mean, unless it's like from the 1700s, mm-hmm. anything that's referred to as a mansion to me after like, what, 1850 mm-hmm. is probably a garish piece of garbage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So See, I would I would say <laughs> it la- a house that lacks taste and is yeah. large is a mansion. Yeah. I was a thinking- well-designed house that is large. It's just a house. Does yeah. anybody call their own home a mansion and believing they have good taste? I guess is the question. I do. Hey, we That's right. There are many buildings in Hong Kong that have mansion in the name. Yeah, I don't know the etymology of those, which are like, um, uh, I guess I would call them like mid-rise multi-unit buildings, which are called mansions, and they are the opposite of garish single-family hmm. large houses, but. Yeah, maybe that's a research question that we'll have to update you guys on yeah, next time. that's interesting. I, I also, for me, I, one of the interesting angles on this question, I was thinking about, like, um, all of the beautiful old mansions in Bronzeville. Mm. which are now often have been subdivided into smaller apartments uh, or can be had for uh, much less than like, you know, a garish mansion. Um, so, and, and so like, that's the philosophical question. It's like, are those still mansions? Like once a mansion, always a mansion. Cause yeah. you drive by them and you're like, ah, it looks pretty mansion-y to me. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. They're yeah. beautiful houses. They're not the garish mansions. They're maybe once upon a time, but now they're just like, mm beautiful stone buildings that are sort of big for the city. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I wish I knew more about the history of the word, but I do not. Yeah. Well, I think it comes from manse, as in you were, the mansion was on the manse, which was the land you owned in England. Oh. It's, oh. An, it's an Anglo-Saxon word, if I'm Oh, correct. I thought it was like... So Laird of the manse, was, that was his property. Oh, I thought it was maybe like an old French version of maison that had an N in it that was lost Uh, over the time. Could be. you know, French words, they seem to lose consonants as the years go on. French words, No, I mean, manse is still a popular term in England and Mm. Scotland, and... You know, you, you're a if you're a landowner, you're a laird of the manse, and the manse is the property of land you own. Hmm. You can have serfs on it if you wish. A laird of the manse. A laird of the manse. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's what Jamie goes by. <laughs> True, I do. I do. I do. Put on my kilt and <laughs> put on those Glasgow Celtic games. And <laughs> uh, next question. Uh, <laughs> Here it is, y'all. What can I do to save costs on my AC this summer? Oh, Lord. Turn off your air conditioning and open your windows. Yeah. Listen to Buildings on Air for all our insulation-related comments. Take it out of the middle of the kitchen floor. (laughs) (laughs) Leave your house and go jump in the lake. Yeah. 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 Passive body cooling strategies. Yeah. I mean, I, I... I feel like you do get used you do get used to the warmer temperatures when you don't have an AC. Yeah. And I feel like I I mean I just got a little window unit and all it does is take the edge off on the really bad days. Oh. That's yeah. pretty much all we use it for. <laughs> take the edge off like a stiff drink at the end of the day. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. <laughs> yeah. The screw the screwdriver Okay, I think the, the maybe the helpful answer to that question is try to open a window on both sides of your house so you get some cross ventilation. Don't just open one window, yeah. and that will drive down the temperatures yeah. in a way that yep. makes things work for you. Yeah. Also, if you have an eastern or western window, maybe cover the sun with drapes so your house isn't just heating up like a greenhouse. Mm. You know, or add some ex yeah some exterior shades could help. Yeah, that's true. Like horizontal shades. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. depend horizontal on the south, <laughs> vertical on the 
uh, east and west, Craig, nothing on the north. You say that like everyone knows it. I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, something that keeps keeps the it, it's unfortunate, but something that keeps the sunlight out in the hottest hours of the day is going to cool your house. Yes. So. Yep. so. Or keep it cool. I mean, I think one of the things that we do is keep keep all of our windows open at night and then, like, close them and try to, you know, draw the drapes uh, through the day. Um, yeah, those those are better answers than my answer of just suck it up until you get used <laughs> to the heat. <laughs> it won't be so bad. Well, like, move more slowly during hot times yeah. of the day. Like, I think yes. there are many climates in which people have adjusted. How, and this is something we've been thinking about l- lately, like, how you can adjust the pace of your day and the way you live and the activities you do at different times of the day. Like, we just need kind of to reacclimate to, like, living in heat as opposed to trying to, like, go really hard from 9 to 5 every single day. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You can also date like a heiress to an ice cooling foundation. <laughs> uh, find somebody that you know works at an ice factory. There's one at the plant. Can go yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I was gonna say like popsicles from yeah, that's um, cool. you know the popsicle guy, but I guess that's my version of the heir to the ice factory. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I don't know if this is related or not, but one of the f- uh, most interesting things that I've read recently is that when Sterling Bay bought one of their first buildings in. Uh, West Loop, it was like a refrigerated, uh, or it was a, it's like a, it was freezer storage mm. for meats, and all of the structural engineers that looked at it said, "We're unsure when you turn off the uh, air conditioning and the building thaws, like whether it will be structurally stable or not, because they couldn't tell the difference between like the, the structural integrity of the walls and what the like layers of ice were." Oh wow, yeah, yeah, right, and you don't want to like unthaw it too quick. For- like if there's stuff in the oh. yeah, but the building's still standing, so apparently they yeah. figured something out. And it's no longer an interior ice cube. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't a place; it was a club actually. And they, their first building was in Tribeca, right? And they had the cooler in the basement. That it was a club called the Cooler. Mm-hmm. That was Sterling Bay's first thing, and they were worried if they turned it off, they couldn't get anybody who was a tenant, if I remember this correctly. But it was like an '80s dance club, mm. so they didn't turn it off, and so they had a very cold dance club called the Cooler. <laughs> That sounds great. Interesting. Yeah. I don't, Anna yeah. and I have a guest room that's kind of like that. We do yeah, have right. a guest room that is a former beer fridge, but we've never <laughs> let it um, try to cool totally. But maybe the summer is does, the summer. Does the temperature stay very consistent in there? Well, like when it was the polar vortex, talking about other climates, um, like our whole apartment froze and Craig and I slept in the beer fridge because it was well insulated. I feel like we've shared that embarrassing piece of news on the radio show before. It's definitely not the first time the beer fridge room has come up. Yeah, Yeah, it's like heterotopia in the apartment. (laughs) Temperature heterotopia. Uh, Next question. We are walking around our new home and noticed a lack of rough-in for a future bar that we had wanted. It's it's in our contract, so we know we are owed the basic rough-in to finish it later, but our GC isn't really telling us the plan yet. Three weeks since finding the problem, it is yet to be fixed. What exactly is going to need to be done here? I guess I think it's funny that they have a contract that says they're going to get rough <laughs> in for a bar. I, maybe they mean well, what is, contract yeah, documents. Maybe for some of the listeners who aren't architects, what is a rough in? Rough in is plumbing in the wall or the floors that will allow you to hook up more fixtures in the future, even if they aren't there now. So well, it's your water supply, your drains, and your vents. You call it rough-in even if it's not like a placeholder for future fixtures. It's sure, just like sure. It's all for, the piping. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. So what's going to happen 
with what should they do? What should they do? Give uh, their contractor a stern talking to. Actually, what they should do is talk to their architect, who <laughs> should have drawn up an AIA contract that will clearly uh, stipulate that the contractor can't get paid until the work is done according to the plans. Right. But they probably didn't hire an architect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Uh, I guess I kind of can't tell how far along they are down this, you know, man cave mm-hmm. bar tragedy. Like, is <laughs> is the chipboard up? Is the neon yeah. sign up? Or, like, can they still call the plumber to, you know? Unclear. I feel like even if the drywall is up, the contractor is still has to, you know, make sure that all of the work is done up to the drawings, right? So mm. they would, they yeah, would have, have to cut to the drywall down, cut it up, and put yeah. it put it back up, right? Yeah. yeah, depends. Yeah, it depends on where it's located. If there's a basement, like it's easy to run plumbing through the basement. Getting the vent will be difficult, but um, yeah, you know, for a contractor to cut out some drywall and put in new pipes is not as big of a job as it sounds like. I think to people that are not in the construction industry. Right. I mean, it's something that a contractor doesn't necessarily want to do, <laughs> but it's actually not that huge a job. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. With withhold withhold that bread until uh, until they do it. Mm. Uh, here's another question. Um, <laughs> this one is very very sweet and earnest. Um, uh, so I, I want to ask it in that spirit. But like, what what are the things that make me a good architect? Skilled at making good architecture. Uh, I feel I'm not very talented. Uh, this must be an architecture. They're student. asking. <laughs> do you think they're asking us to like repeat that, like me, and this is what makes me skilled, or we're kind of saying what think, things do we think I are think, valuable skills in the discipline? Yeah, I think the I think the question is like I think uh, I what what can I do to be a good architect if I think that I'm not very talented at architecture. Oh, this is, yeah, this is suddenly such an earnest and serious question. Well, one, I think if you really like the profession and it's something that you're really passionate about, you just have to find uh, an area that you that you enjoy doing. And I think naturally if you enjoy something, you'll be good at it. Um, if they're a student, I think that oftentimes in school we are kind of um, – we are kind of soaking in this design ethos, but mm. there's a lot of other things that architects can do that are really important, like do plumbing drawings for where <laughs> vents and drains go or think about kind of mm-hmm. material research. Yeah. So I think it's about finding that thing that really interests them. Um, and then for me, I think it's been a lot of just like uh, hard work and perseverance. Yeah, I guess I uh, part of me thinks that like it's, part of me thinks like it's the discipline's fault that any of our students think they're like not a good architect like no nobody like it's gonna take a lifetime for any of us to be like even good at like one small thing in this business so Mm. like in the meantime of course you just like do what you love but I like I guess I I wish our students didn't feel like one could be like already in school like have some sort of sentence on you whether you're like a good designer a good architect or not like I don't think I don't think there there should be that kind of like evaluation so soon. No. It's about actually just like should be about like constructing a way to like be interested in the things you're interested in and yeah. and enjoy them. I mean, that's like a I don't know. It seems like to me that that's the issue of our our discipline, not the issue of that person yeah. that they feel like they're not doing a good job. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, the profession's so multifaceted, right? Like, and so it would be really, like, the idea that there is even, like, a talent called, like, architecture is so hard because it's so many different things. Like, I know I've had students who are incredibly, like, gifted, like, uh, drawers, right, or, or draftspeople, or, or, or like you know, can really like think through certain aspects of architecture extremely well. But that doesn't mean that they're good at all the rest of it. And like, I mean, I, I think with students, for me, a lot of times uh, they feel like they're not talented because maybe they're not good at representation, hmm. like uh-huh. draw, like yep. drawing stuff, mm-hmm. like and or, yeah, or otherwise sort of like getting something out onto the page. Um, which I can sympathize with. I, I like. I'm not. The, I'm not a gifted sketch artist by by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. Like, or I'm not even good at like rendering. Like, <laughs> but like, there's like some. You know, there's some things that I do know I'm good at, and I and I always try to play to those strengths. Like, sometimes I gotta bite the bullet and like wade through. You know, doing something that I'm not the most comfortable with. Uh, but but I don't know. Like, it's such a big profession. Like, there's always yeah. room to kind of play to your strengths most of the time. Well, and there's always like you'll always feel like you're not doing a good job if you always see your your skills within like a a, a huge landscape of having to do everything, right? <laughs> right but right. like any building is always yeah. the like assembly of many people who are good at many different things, like coming together around their complementary interests. So like you don't have to be good at all, but like I think we always feel like we're not good at it all, yeah. especially in school where you're expected to do everything. Like right, you're 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 setting the big ideas, you're setting the right. framework, you're doing the representation, but you're also doing like structures and try to get do a good plan or whatever. And like at the review, wherever you fail, that is always the part that's talked about right and so there's this sense that you have to do it all but i would say like in our day-to-day lives we just like come together around the things that we're good at or interested in with other people and it doesn't feel like we have to like be you know we don't have to close the loop every time (laughs) right yeah yeah you gotta like and even that's a kind of skill set right is like being able to be the kind of telephone operator between yeah. all of those different <laughs> different skill sets. Very literally, as yes. you hear me on the phone all day <laughs> trying to do team assembly. But um, yeah. I don't know. I guess I also think, like, I lately find pleasure in, like, learning new skills or techniques, but I'm, mm-hmm. like, terrible at them when I start. But, like, that doesn't have to be – that doesn't have to, like, reflect on us as individuals, like, our, our ability to be, like, a talented architect. Like, yeah. I can just be, like, really terrible at mapping for a few years. I'm like, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I uh, yeah, it's good. I mean, I feel like that's one thing that could change in the discourse. As long as your teachers constantly told you what things you're terrible. Well, I'm like, I, it would it would have been really nice in school to hear like a professor be like, "I'm terrible at this thing," yeah. <laughs> which I do tell my students all the time. Like, I'm I'm not a good sketch artist. Like, we're gonna we're gonna sketch together though. Here we go. Oh, I admit uh, to my landscape students all the time that I'm terrible at tree yeah. identification. Yeah. Craig <laughs> is really bad at tree identification. I would say he's very good at many things, but tree identification Everything's is a not lot, one right? of his strong points. They're all larches. <laughs> I would never ask Craig to identify a tree, let's be real. I think that's more a factor, though, of the technical disciplines. Like, I think in other disciplines, like, you know, where I have my degree, yeah. um, people, are, I, don't, I don't think in, in, the, uh, in the humanities, students have a feeling that there's... Um, 
there's a knowledge gap, but there probably is a more equality between themselves and the people that are teaching them. You know, mm-hmm. if you're a, a writer, uh, as you know, that's what I have my degree in is it is essentially a, a worthless creative writing degree. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I knew that my teachers, they, they published, you know, and, and some of their books I enjoyed and some of them I didn't. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So there was there was this much more uh, equanimity between us. And some of my classmates were very talented writers. You know, yeah. but they didn't have the the breadth of knowledge really mm. to spin something, or they didn't have the um, patience to write long. Perhaps you know what mm. I mean. I think in the technical trades where where you guys are, there's a lot more pressure because it's a lot more. It used to be anyway a lot more expensive, and I think mm. there's a lot more. You know, nobody cares if my novel's crap, but mm. people do care if the building falls down. Yeah. So I think there's a different level of pressure, which may be uh, yeah. contributing to that. Well, and it. I mean, I think that if if there is. If there is like one, I mean, I think that there are some things that by the time you get to college might be kind of baked into your personality. Not that they're like innate to you. Like every, you can always change. People can always change. But, but I think, you know, when you are working at a small practice where you have lots of different responsibilities, uh, you do have to think very laterally, which is like not, which has less to do with technical knowledge or like anything like that. But but you do have to have a brain that can kind of work between very different things and and connect the dots. But that's I, I also don't think that's all of architecture, which is you know if if you do like to kind of be an expert at one thing and, and less of a generalist. There's That's definitely there's definitely yeah. room for that in, in, in the profession as well. And like you said, and there's not always room for that in school. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. Well, so I, keep, I hope, keep yeah, plugging along. I hope that's a uh, comfort. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because I, you know, I, I, I mean, I, you know, um, yeah, keep, keep plugging away. And I mean, it's, it's a, it's a big world out there. Um, and if it's not a comfort, tough. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> you know, sorry, guys. Yeah, right. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Um, Isn't there a story about Art Garfunkel that you should conclude with? Oh, but I forget if it's, I'm 95% sure it's Art Funkel, Garfunkel, not Paul Simon, but music aficionado should correct me here that, um, like, well, now you've given away the punchline, like a young man was studying <laughs> architecture as a draft person, and he worked in, I want to say, like, McKim, Mead, and White, or like some, like, old Boston firm, and, like, that person was like, like young man, like you'll never be an architect. Like this trade isn't for you. Go find something else. And then it like was Art Garfunkel. <laughs> but I, I like just to say like, yeah, there could be other roads too. Like if it's miserable and and you hate it and the discipline is too backwards and you don't feel like the energy to solve it, then I think it's also okay to to peel off. Yeah. Uh, next question, shall we? Uh, this is. I, I swear this is a real question. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, I mean, they're all real questions, uh, uh, but this one will sound fake. Uh, what can I do to make the inside of my cabin feel like an elderly couple's home? I want my cabin to feel nice and cozy. <laughs> well, what you, I think. What do you think an elderly couple? I mean, what do you think an elderly couple's home looks like? Is I think the first question to ask. Like what? What to you signifies an elderly couple, and why does that make you feel cozy? Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> this is like I'm very like interested a, in the psychology a therapy of this question, yeah. not an architecture. Well, question. I mean, if like you, if you like, I, I can see like you grew up somewhere, and oh, I went to grandma's cabin as a kid, and it was really mm-hmm. nice and cozy, and that's kind of the feeling I want to recreate. I guess I, I'm not sure other people, 
including interior designers, would have any idea really what you were talking about. We said <laughs> they might have the idea of I want a woodsy cabin in Austria in the 1840s or something. You know what I mean? But I, I think it's very difficult when 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 you don't kind of know the psychology again behind that. Yeah. Yes, my grandparents did not have cabins, so it's hard for me to evaluate yeah. this. Right. <laughs> Sometimes to relax at night, I look at. Um, <laughs> Zillow ads in like weird areas of the country, either like kind of usually like very rural areas. Yeah. And recently, I came across one in like middle Illinois somewhere that was a, a ranch house, but on the inside, every uh, cabinet in like the bathrooms and the kitchen was all like hand painted and these like very intricate. Ah. Uh, hues of like lavender and pink and then there were like lots of drapes and fabrics and it like yeah. it did have the appearance of like an elderly person's home but like in a uh, or maybe it was like more from there I don't know it's like it was very insane but it was also were all the couches covered in plastic <laughs> they were not they were not but they were all like floral patterns yeah. so it's okay. like floral patterns on the cabinets floral patterns yeah. on the couches I, I just want to point out that Craig started that sentence with sometimes to relax at night <laughs> I look at Zillow ads and and I wonder if now we need to have a, a moment <laughs> an intervention yeah, yeah that's what I was, that was what I was, was going to say it's nice to imagine you know like running away to the middle of nowhere and you yeah. know and, and, know. and and, you know, Living on 40 a, acres and never talking to yeah, anyone again. In, in a cabin that's decorated like an elderly person's home. <laughs> yeah. Craig wants to buy a, this is totally derailing, but wants to like us to buy a small place in the middle of nowhere that when we're not there, like other people can go do a residency where there's like no obligation to produce any work, but you can just go there and be silent. Um, that's a very would nice you, idea. Would you let go to that? Would you go to that if we had that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, geez, <laughs> of course. Okay. I think um, it'd be the most competitive residence. Drop my first F bomb on the air. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There'd be like no Wi Fi, no one would bother you. Yeah. Like yeah. you would just like go there and like you could read or whatever yeah. you wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, it does sound suspiciously like The Shining. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, yeah. that's the only thing I can think How of. would it be decorated? <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, there's this island in northern Lake Huron that is right in between. It is still in the U.S., but it is like detached from the U.S. mainland and like right on the border with Canada called Drummond Island that has a lot of these like cool, very rural places that I am interested in. I mean, you, being on an island seems too next level for me. Like, I don't know. Like, you know, <laughs> Craig has an I inner just, like, yeah, that he needs. yeah. You have to like get there, yeah. like you know, on like you know, you like arrive at a rural airport, and you're like, I have to go to such and such island where the artist residency is, and there's like an old guy who's like, you can't get there from here. <laughs> and then you have it's to like, the Great Lakes, you know, you can take a boat. Then you have to charter like a weird boat, like with yeah, like you a, know, a person yeah. in a rowboat. Of- yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Indeterminate I mean, age. Yeah. It <laughs> is, like it is literally a horror movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but but that said, like, sign me up still. Um, you know? <laughs> we'll report yeah, back. Yeah, right. Like, either you get, <laughs> or we won't. Yeah, right. Or we'll either, never report back again is the yeah. more likely option. Yeah, either 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 you have a nice and relaxing time in the woods um, or or you get sort of – you know, murdered, and, <laughs> and as as a millennial, win win, right? Like, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but also, I you know, I do I do think I know what this question asks. Like, when I think about an elderly person's home, I think about my grandparents' home, and there is like a specific blanket. Do you guys know, like, uh, the wool blanket oh, like that's the like Afghans? a pastel 
color, mm-hmm. like a scratchy Crochet. wool blanket. No, no, scratchy no? wool, like scratchy more wool. mass manufactured hmm, okay. that has like a silk liner at the top. Uh, yep. Even my yes. grandparents had that. Yeah, yes. that is like a ubiquitous feature of like, like a houses. satin edge yes yes like in yes. a pale orange or exactly something. i yes. have never where seen this where did they get yeah. those from i don't know but I, okay. I knew i was not the only one uh, i know what you're saying I that is no a cross-cultural yeah. blanket i don't know maybe maybe it didn't make it across the pond it may not we have crocheted like yeah. blankets and <laughs> scratchy that, that feels less like uh that feels more appropriate and less like America, like mass manufacturer. <laughs> oh, these definitely were not mass. No, this was, this was yeah. grandma. Yeah, you know, no, killing this time. Is, this is more like a Betty, Betty Draper type of okay. blanket right. situation. But that's 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 what I would put if I wanted to feel comfortable because that that is like feels like a ubiquitous comforting experience. Mm. Okay. Uh, here's another question. I think this will be an easy answer. Uh, can you burn candles if you have a gas powered home? Presumably no one like has oven. a gas-powered home. They might have a <laughs> gas-heated home. Uh, yes, you can burn candles. Yeah, gas, very safe. Don't yeah, worry about sure. it. Sure. I mean, unless your home actually is gas-powered and it moves. <laughs> yeah, right. Like it's on like, it's chicken feet. It's Howl's moving yeah. to Castle, yeah. in fact. Yeah. yeah, or Baba Yaga's home, oh, I was yeah. thinking, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Natural gas. Or ha- an RV. <laughs> or an RV. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I don't recommend burning candles inside, regardless, due to my personal history. But, you know, <laughs> you, can, you can do whatever you want. I guess. Was your house yeah. fire caused by a candle? Uh, no, it was caused by burning things inside, though. Mm. So, no. That was um, sufficiently vague to be intriguing. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was caused by a smoldering smudge sage stick. Mm. Uh, so I, I, you know, no, no more interior fire mm. unless mm. it's on a stove. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, it's an interesting thing. I, I think people now are wondering about the emissions coming off gas stoves. And I love my gas stove. Mm. So I have a hard time giving it up. I'm, I'm wondering if maybe the, the switch to all electric induction burgers, burners may be better. So that may be not a, if a your one. electricity is coming from a coal power plant. Uh, yeah, it's true. Yeah, true. I, you know, yeah, I, I like our gas burner at home too. We we have the. Uh, <laughs> what? what? That was just like a very old man way to say that. Yeah. Uh, right. You know, when I had a gas burner yeah, in '52, we used to wear an onion on our belt because it was the style at the time. <laughs> I walked down to buy some penny candy, and I told Mary and Ella, you know, I like that gas stove. Uh, uh, what can I, do? I mean, like, look, I'm, I'm, everyone knows I'm a 60-year-old in a 29, 29-year-old's yes, body. Tell everyone what yeah. time you eat lunch, Keeper. I eat lunch geez. at 11 a.m. Always a bit of cottage cheese and peaches. <laughs> 11 a.m., I have my turkey sandwich almost every day. Yeah. Oh, that's, on the dot. That's me. Yeah. On the dot. What can I say? Is that is that it for the mailbag? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, right, that, that's all the questions that, that we've got. Get that um, theme. There we go. All right. There we go. <laughs> well, until next time, folks. Uh, Craig and Ann, thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> thanks for having us. And uh, what a great show. Producer Jamie, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I thought that was a good show. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's get rid of that for a second. There we go. <laughs> go uh, are we, we may be back, what, next month? Yeah. We're, we'll, we're definitely we'll going to be back next we'll month. We'll see you in a week or two for the next episode. Should we tell people why it, it's either next week or 
or at yeah, the same time slow. Yeah. We should be honest about that. I mean, look, you, you <laughs> true fans will remember the time when there was a Liverpool game that was at the same time uh, as a Buildings on Air, and you were all treated to, if you're listening live, right. live commentary on said game right. as uh, Jamie and I half did a radio show right. and half watched out of the corner of our eye <laughs> right. a live stream. Right. Um, it and, is the European Cup final. Yes. It, it is appearing. So it is Liverpool versus Tottenham. Yes. And, and it is um, uh, I'm a Kiefer's, big Liverpool fan. Right. It's the first time in 10 years, correct, for a European Cup? Am I, I correct? It was 2009? Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. So I have suggested to Kiefer that since I will be watching the European Cup, whether it is here on this computer, that's fine with me, or yeah. on my beautiful large TV, <laughs> yeah. which I would greatly prefer, we, we well, somehow are going to we'll be watching see, I got, I got to check in with the guests that we've got lined up. Uh, I think the next episode of the show uh, is going to be themed around the Green New Deal, which will oh, okay. be very exciting. Uh, you know, I think this this episode we've we've hit some old buildings on air saws, as I mentioned. The racket of the yeah, international codes. It'll yeah. it'll uh-huh. probably be the last time that we mention codes or uh, or or the failings of yimbyism for some time. Good. Although you know we can't help ourselves. Is the guest <laughs> so. that's coming on confl- uh, fluent in football at all? Uh, I'm not sure. Well, couldn't say. Couldn't say. Yeah. We'll have to find out. We'll find out. <laughs> well, until next time, folks, thanks for uh, tuning in, and uh, we will talk to you in June. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay. And Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at bldgsonair or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com. This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes. Thank <laughs> you.